Amen. And good morning again. I hope you're doing well this morning. I hope you're really doing well. Because so many people in our world, in our country, in our state, in our county are not doing very well today. Uh, Many of them are suffering through various hardships, of course, as a direct and indirect result of the coronavirus spreading among us. Many folks have contracted the virus, have loved ones who have passed away, who have suffered direct effects from the virus itself. Others have been sort of indirectly affected. They've been essential workers. They've had to live in harm's way. They've suffered the anxiety of feeling always exposed to the virus. Still others have suffered through being in isolation and that's been really hard or not gone well for them or with them. Students have had to uh, practice distance learning, which has been difficult for some students, certainly a challenge and difficult for many teachers who have had to pivot and learn a whole new way of uh, teaching that they didn't sign up for. Parents have had to become teachers as well. And on top of all of those people and others, there are the tens of millions of people in our country who today have now lost their jobs, their ways of earning a living, their uh, ways of supporting themselves and their families. And so on top of the stress of losing their income and not knowing what the future holds, there are now tens of millions of households in our country who live with the stress and anxiety and fear of what tomorrow will bring. And all of this has happened in a culture that was already suffering in another way by experiencing deep, deep divisions in our culture as a country. According to many social scientists, deeper divisions and separation than have ever existed before in our country. And the coronavirus has simply become one more way in which those divisions are exhibited, manifest, compounded, both outwardly and inwardly. Democrats are pointing fingers at Republicans. Republicans are pointing fingers at Democrats. Americans are pointing their fingers at the Chinese government, at the Communist Party. The Chinese government is pointing their finger at the United States, at America, at Americans. The gap between those in America who have and those who do not have seems to be exacerbated by this season of coronavirus. There are many who are saying that and showing, describing ways in which the coronavirus has highlighted the chasm between the African-American experience in the United States and that of Caucasian people, about the gap and the inequalities that are coming to the surface between the white experience and the Latino or the African-American experience in the United States, not because of genetics or some predisposition biologically, but rather because of socioeconomic inequalities. Christians and churches in America are also wrapped up in and in some cases divided by this whole thing as well. Some want to gather, some insist on not gathering. Different views on when to open, how to open. We live in a culture today in which people are set against each other more than ever before. And the scriptures speak exactly to this point. God speaks this through his word, as we'll see in a moment, but first, would you pray with me?
God, we ask that you would help us to be attentive to you, not just cognitively, but that also. But attentive to you with our spirits, with our hearts, with our souls. That your spirit might be united to our spirit, our spirits might be united to your spirit, that through your word, through the words of Jesus, we might be drawn into your presence, into your power, into your glory, and into your grace. That we might make one more step along the journey of healing toward hope. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray, deviate, or are inconsistent with your word, may they just be quickly, immediately forgotten. We pray these things in the name and in the way of Jesus. Amen. Now I want to recap for just a minute or two about where we've been over the last couple of weeks and really the last couple of months, the first couple of months of this year to be exact. Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God. From the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus preached, declared, announced, taught, described, and made visible what he called the kingdom of God through his life, through his ministry, the kingdom or the reign or the rule or the dominion or domain of God. And not so much a place, but a reality and a relationship that is available and accessible to people like you and me. Now, here, today, in your home, where you're at, in your life, the kingdom of God or the reign, realm, reality, a relationship with God are all available to you, and Jesus wants this for us. He spoke more about the kingdom of God from beginning to end than any other topic by far. And he came to show us the way, to teach us the way of the kingdom, because he was the way, and he is the way. And if any quality, trait, or attribute characterizes the kingdom of God more than others, it is love. The scriptures say that God is love, and so the king of the kingdom is love. When asked what the greatest of the 600 plus commands in the Old Testament was, Jesus said that the greatest commandments of the Old Testament, of the Jewish scriptures, were love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, love, which is a verb, which means to will good to another person. Love is the defining action of the kingdom. For God so loved the world, the king loves, the king loves us, and he seeks to impute his love and his way of love to his creation. Jesus says the most important thing that a person could do is love God, love one's neighbor, to love God by loving one's neighbor, and to love one's neighbor by loving God. The two are inseparably connected, interconnected, interwoven. A person can't fully love God without loving also one's neighbors. A person can't fully love one's neighbors without also loving God. And then last week, Jesus helped us to understand who exactly is our neighbor. Who exactly are my neighbors? And a person's neighbors very specifically were not and are not only or simply the really nice families that live to our right and to, and to our left at our home in Foster City. 
A person's neighbors, by Jesus' definition, are not limited to the people who live on one street or with whom one has much in common, but often, so often, are the people on the other side of the road, the people on the other side of the tracks, the people who live in a different community, who come from a different place, who look different, sound different, act different, live differently, and who are exactly who we're not expecting to be our neighbors, and people toward whom we may have previously held a variety of prejudices, but who are nevertheless just as much as we are made in the image of God, made in the image of their creator who loves them. And Jesus said that if you're going to live in this kingdom or if you want to experience this kingdom, his kingdom, that is now more available to you than it's ever been before, you are going to have to think differently. We're going to have to act differently. We're going to have to live fundamentally differently. The biblical word that Jesus uses is repent or else you'll miss the kingdom of God. Think differently, look differently, act differently, live differently, be different fundamentally. And then Jesus ups the bar as he's always inclined to do. Jesus. But he always ups also the reward, the prize, the blessing, the joy. Always. Reading from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 42. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples and to a crowd. Listen with me to our teacher, rabbi, master, Lord. This is the word of God. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No one ever said hate your enemy explicitly in the scriptures, but that was the culture. That was the history of division, of being against one another. They, them, separation. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy and hate your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, And Jesus overrules everything they had heard up to that point. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He, your Father in heaven, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And what he means there, the Greek word for perfect is teleos, which doesn't mean moral purity or perfection, but rather be uh, perfect means to arrive, to get to the place one is intended to go. And in this context, it means to be perfect or fulfilled or complete or mature in love. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfectly mature in the way of love. And yet by a biblical definition of love, in other words, to seek another person's well-being, to be invested in that person sacrificially, by a biblical definition of love, people today barely love their friends. We live in a culture that breeds, encourages, and even affirms contempt for other people. 
Arthur Brooks, who is the, uh, a professor at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, cites scientific studies that point to a change in our country's culture about five years ago, a shift that led our leaders about five years ago. Democrats and Republicans to begin to hold more disdain for one another than even Palestinians and Israelis hold for one another. More than they have held contempt for one another over the last 70 years over their entire history. And how is that working out for us as a nation? How is that working out for us as people? And Jesus might point out or ask, how is that working out for our enemies? We say that we want to become like Jesus, that we want to walk in his steps, that we want to do what he says to do. We want to become more like Jesus. Love your enemies. Wish them well. Seek their well-being. Will for them good. Jesus, who was just like his daddy, said that his Abba daddy gave sunshine to friends and enemies alike. His daddy, his Abba, his father, poured out the rain on the good and the bad the righteous and the unrighteous, the enemies and the friends in just the same way. Jesus refuses to let his students think that they're becoming like the king or that they can enter his kingdom if they only love their friends. God wants for us more than that, more than mere clicks, more than you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. If we continue down our current path, our troubles will only grow. Coronavirus will one day pass away, or at least not be the trouble that it is now, Lord willing. But until we learn to love our enemies and make them our friends, our world's demise is certainly sealed. If we continue to tear one another down and fight only for our own needs and not give to one another, seek the best for one another, if we never forgive, if we never trust again, I fear that our fate, at least in this life, is sealed. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, if we allowed the love of God to be formed in us, all things are possible. If we allow the love of God to be formed in us, I find some things very helpful here that Dallas Willard has said. He's written, Love, as Paul and the New Testament presents it, is not action, not even action with a special intention, but a source of action. God is love. It is a condition out of which actions of a certain type emerge. It is a condition out of which actions of a certain type emerge emerge. And Willard goes on, Paul understood the fallacy of those who say, I just can't love so-and-so. And there they stop and give up on love. He knew that they were working at the wrong level. Willard continues, they should not try to love that person, but try to become the kind of person who would love them. Only so can the ideal of love pass into a real possibility and practice. Our aim under love is not to be loving to this or that person or in this or that kind of situation, but to be a person possessed by love as an overall character of life, whatever is or is not going on. The occasions are met with from that overall character. 
I do not come to my enemy and then try to love them. I come to them as a loving person. Love is not a faucet to be turned off or on at will. God himself doesn't just love me or you. He is love. He is creative will for all that is good. That is his identity, Willard writes, and explains why he loves individuals even when he is not pleased with them, us. We are directed by Paul to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. We are called and enabled to love as God loves. Willard continues. Love then is a condition of the will embedded in all fundamental dimensions of the human personality. It is not something you choose to do, but what you choose to be. It is not something you choose to do. It is something you choose to be. Which sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? As it turns out, who invited his students to love their enemies and pray for them so that they might become like their Father in heaven who is love. That they might be or become perfect in love as their Father in heaven is perfect in love. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, which has come remarkably near and is available to us, in that kingdom, we can become the kind of people who wish our enemies well and even pray for them. Jim Wallace, the founder of the Sojourners Movement, an organization, Jim Wallace has written, as long as we do not pray for our enemies, we continue to see only our own point of view, our own righteousness, and we ignore their perspective. But prayer breaks down the distinctions between us and them. To do violence to others, you must make them enemies. Prayer, on the other hand, makes enemies into friends. When we have brought our enemies into our hearts in prayer, it becomes difficult to maintain the hostility necessary for violence. In bringing them close to us, prayer even serves to protect our enemies. Thus, prayer undermines the propaganda and policies of our world designed to make us hate and fear enemies. By softening our hearts toward our adversaries, prayer can even become treasonous. Fervent prayer for our enemies is a great obstacle to war and the feelings that lead to war. To pray for our enemies is revolutionary for them, but also and maybe more so for us, for ourselves. And so Jesus has outlined a plan to change the world by which the world might be changed, reformed, transformed, renewed, and to change even in every one of us along the way if and as we will, even if and as we will embrace him and his kingdom, we too can be changed one at a time, every one of us. Carl. Carl was a quiet man. He didn't talk much, but he always greeted people with a warm smile. Nevertheless, even after living in the neighborhood for over 50 years, no one could really say they knew Carl very well. 
Up until his retirement, Carl took the bus to work each morning. The sight of him walking down the street alone, though sometimes concerned people, Carl had a slight limp from a bullet wound he received in World War II. Watching him, people worried that although he had survived World War II, he may not make it through the changing uptown neighborhood with its growing gangs, drug activity, and ever-increasing random violence. One day when Carl saw a flyer at our local church asking for volunteers to care for the large garden between the minister's residence and the sanctuary, he responded in his characteristically unassuming manner. Without any fanfare, he took on the task. He was well into his 87th year. When the very thing that people sometimes feared finally happened, Carl was just finishing his watering for the day when three gang members approached him. Ignoring their attempt to intimidate him, Carl simply asked, would you like a drink of water from the hose? The tallest and toughest looking of the three said, yeah, sure, with a malevolent smile. And as Carl offered the hose to him, the other two grabbed Carl's arm and yanked him down. As the hose sneaked crazily over the ground, dousing everything in its space, Carl's assailants stole his retirement watch and his wallet and then fled. Carl tried to get himself up, but he had fallen on his bad leg. He lay there trying to gather himself as the minister came running to help him. Although the minister had heard the attack through the window of his study, He couldn't get there fast enough to stop it. And so when he arrived, he said, Carl, are you okay? Can I help you? Are you hurt? The minister kept asking as Carl slowly made his way to his feet. Carl passed a hand over his brow and simply sighed, just some wayward kids. I hope they'll wise up one day. And with his wet clothes clinging to his slight frame, Carl picked up the hose again, adjusted the nozzle a bit, and again began to water. Confused and a little concerned, the minister asked, Carl, what are you doing? I've got to finish my watering. It's been really dry lately, Carl replied. Satisfied that Carl really was all right, the minister marveled to himself, Carl really was a man from a different time and place. Then a few weeks later, the three hoodlums returned. Just as before, their taunting went unchallenged. Carl again offered them a drink from his hose. This time they didn't rob him though, but they wrenched the hose from his hand and drenched him head to foot in the icy water. When they had finished their humiliation from him, they sauntered off down the street, throwing catcalls and curses, falling over one another, laughing at the hilarity of what they had just done. And Carl just watched them. And then he turned toward the warmth-giving sun, picked up his hose, and went back to his watering. And as the late summer faded into fall, one day Carl was doing some tilling when he was startled by a sudden awareness of someone behind him. Surprised by the presence of another person, Carl stumbled and fell into some low bushes. As he struggled to gather himself, Carl looked up to see the tall leader of his summer tormentors with arm down toward him. Carl braced himself for the expected attack. Don't worry, old man. I'm not going to hurt you this time, the young man said. 
with his tattooed arm and scarred hand still extended toward Carl. As he held Carl up, the man pulled a crumpled bag out of his jacket pocket and he handed it to Carl. What's this, Carl asked. It's your stuff, the young man replied. I don't understand, Carl asked. What are you doing? Why are you returning this? The young man shifted his feet, unsure exactly what to say, but finally got out. I learned something from you. I ran with that gang and hurt people like you. We picked on you because we could, but every time we came and did something to you, instead of yelling or cursing us, you offered us a drink. You didn't hate us for hating you. You kept showing love against our hate. And then he stopped for a moment. I couldn't sleep after we stole your stuff. So here his back. He paused for another awkward moment, not knowing what there was to say. This stuff is my way of saying thanks for helping straighten me out, I guess. And with that, he turned and walked down the street. And Carl looked in the crumpled bag, and there was his retirement watch, which he put back on his wrist. And there also was his wallet with all the money still in it. But more than that and more precious than that was the wedding photo which was still in his wallet. He gazed for a moment at the young bride that still smiled back at him from all those years ago. Carl died one day after Christmas that winter, one cold day. Many people attended his funeral in spite of the weather. In particular, the minister noticed a tall young man that he didn't recognize sitting quietly in a back corner of the church. In his homily, the minister spoke of Carl's garden as a metaphor for life. In a voice made thick with unshed tears, he said to those gathered, do your best to make your garden as beautiful as you can. We will never forget Carl and his garden. Three months later, at the beginning of spring, another flyer went up on the bulletin board out in front of the church. It read, person needed to care for Carl's garden. The flyer went unnoticed by the busy parishioners and passersby until one day when a knock was heard at the minister's office door. Opening the door, the minister saw a pair of scarred and tattooed hands holding the flyer. I believe this is my job if you will have me, he said. The minister recognized him as the same young man who had been at Carl's funeral. And the minister suspected that God was up to something here. And so the minister handed to this young man the keys to the garden shed and said, Yes, take care of Carl's garden and honor him. And the young man went to work, and over the next several years, he tended the flowers and the vegetables and the other plants just as Carl had done. In that time, he also started college, got married, and became a respected member of the community. But he never forgot his promise to Carl's memory, and he kept the garden as beautiful as he thought Carl would have kept it. And then one day he again knocked on the minister's door and he told the minister that he would not be able to care for the garden any longer. He explained with a shyly happy smile, my wife just had a baby last night and she's bringing him home tomorrow.
Well, congratulations, said the minister as the man handed the keys to the garden shed back to the minister. That's a wonderful thing. I'm happy for you. What is your baby boy's name? To which the young man replied, Carl. Carl. There is a way in which the love of God can so infuse us that we begin to love those who hate us. That love begins to weed out and conquer hate, contempt, disdain in our hearts and then in our communities and then in our world. There is one who desires, who taught his disciples the way of loving not just their friends and not just their family members and not even just their neighbors, but also their enemies. As he did. As he did in his teaching, as he did in his life, as he did on a cross. His name is Jesus. And his way and his kingdom are open to every one of us today. And I can't think of anything that our world more desperately needs and that our nation more desperately needs and that our communities more desperately need and that our hearts and ourselves more desperately need than a renovation by the Creator to infuse, to fill with us, to fill our hearts with His love that we might become loving people, that that might become our nature and our character and our default setting. So that when we encounter people, when we encounter neighbors, when we encounter or think of or see even our enemies, that our response is wishing them well. That our response is seeking good for them. And when that happens, God's kingdom will have come and his will will be done. Let's pray together. We pray, God, for ourselves that you would have mercy on us, that in your grace you would help us to be like our Abba in heaven that you would help us to be not only made in your image, but recovered and recovering from the fall. We pray for our enemies this morning, for our political enemies, for our ideological enemies, for our national enemies, for our neighborhood enemies. We pray for the people that we don't like, that you would help us to love them. Bless them. Fill their lives with good things. Have mercy on them. Be kind and gracious to them. Forgive them as you have forgiven us. These things we ask in the name of Rabbi, Teacher, Master, Lord, Savior, Jesus. Amen.